Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Rick Brownell. That's my wife, Sheila, in the back there. And uh, we used to go to church here a long time ago. In fact, we were, um, we were members here when Rob was first called to be the pastor here at Emmanuel Community Church. And I'm going to be with you the next two weeks. In the next two weeks, we're going to be in the Psalm, Psalm 102 and then Psalm 105. And uh, this morning, I, I thought I had finished um, with miracles, but I, I guess I haven't. <laughs> and so uh, I'm hoping we'll gain uh, some insight into the things I've already said about miracles and being a discerning people from the other messages that I preached uh, prior to Robin being here last week. So let me begin with giving you the title of the sermon, The Peculiar Miracle of Jesus Walking on the Water, and I'll tell you why I think that's peculiar in a moment. As you probably know, all four of the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, share details about Jesus from a particular point of view. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels, sin meaning same, optic meaning view. They give the same view uh, because they include many of the same stories and often but in uh, different ways, a similar sequence with identical wording to the stories being accounted for. And each of the authors of the Synoptic Gospels give us the accounts of a particular story from their individual points of view. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke stand in contrast, that's why those are the only three Synoptic Gospels, to what John's Gospel is, because his content is largely distinct from the other three. And there are ten stories that all four of the Gospels share together. But there's only one miracle that they all share, and that's the feeding of the 5,000 mentioned in all four of the Gospels, which is the only miracle apart from the resurrection. There is another miracle of 4,000 feeding, a feeding of 4,000, which is mentioned in Matthew and Mark, but is not in Luke and John. So let me define for you how I am understanding what a miracle is, and then we'll look in more detail about what happened at the feeding of the 5,000. A miracle is a supernatural act of divine intervention that demonstrates great power, control, and influence well outside the normal laws of nature. And because all four of the gospel accounts record the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, we should probably be careful to consider what each account has to offer regarding that miracle because they all place it in such a high status in the Gospels. And this morning we're going to see that in a single sentence, Mark's account gives us special insight into something that happened at the feeding of the 5,000. Now, in Matthew, Mark, and John, each of those authors records the miracle of Jesus walking on the water immediately after the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Luke does not include the miracle of Jesus walking on the water in his account. 
And at the end of Mark's recounting of Jesus walking on the water as he's telling the story, he makes a curious comment tucked away in a single sentence that informs us of the disciples' heart response to the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, which had happened earlier that evening. And what had happened was that there was a hardening of the heart as the disciples were observing the feeding of the 5,000. Here's the statement that Mark makes at the end of the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. Jesus is approaching the boat in the middle of the lake. And he says to the disciples, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. And here's the comment. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Mark makes it clear that hardening of the heart in his gospel is a problem, and he mentions it several times. It was actually a typical response for some groups of people. The leaders in Mark 3, 5 were said to have their hearts hardened towards Jesus' teaching. The crowd in Mark 4, 2 said that their hearts were hardened. And it's a little bit unusual and kind of odd to see that the disciples also suffer from having a hardened heart. And he mentions that in 6.52, which is what we're looking at this morning. But he also mentions it again at the feeding of the 4,000, when he makes the comment about the leaven of the Pharisees and the disciples' misunderstanding, he asks them again, is your heart still hardened? So Mark sees all of their hearts as one heart. Heart is singular there. All of their hearts together were hardened in response to the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And because Mark places that comment in the story of Jesus coming to them walking on the water, it causes me to think that there's a curious reason for this particular miracle that we would otherwise miss without the comment. And so we need to kind of go back and forth now between the two miracles to understand what really happened there. Again, here's the comment, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Hardened happens to be a perfect passive participle, and what Mark is saying is that during the feeding of the 5,000, their heart calloused. It was incapable of grasping something. It became intellectually and morally hardened, because their heart was insensible to what had occurred as they were witnessing it. Their hearts, or their heart, was unresponsive to the miracle. Their heart had lost the power to understand what they were observing and intimately involved with. And because they didn't understand the miracle of the feeding, their heart, as Mark is looking back at the miracle previous to Jesus walking on the water, He's saying their heart kept existing in a hardened state until Jesus comes to them walking on the water. And that's why I say it's a peculiar miracle, because there's a definite thing that Jesus is trying to accomplish with the disciples in this miracle. Now, hardened is actually a perfect passive participle, something outside of them, not active, but passive, 
was acting on their heart, he's saying. And as they were intimately involved in witnessing and partaking in this feeding, something was causing the hearts of the disciples to be hardened. Causing their heart to be insensible, numb, perceptively dull, and dead towards what was happening during the feeding of the 5,000. And like I said earlier, speaking about miracles in general, what should have happened was that the miracle should have been making their heart more faithful, more courageous, more trusting and bold, reliably certain as to the divine power that belonged to Jesus alone. And Mark suggests that something about the miracle was supposed to be validated. It was supposed to be confirmed in their minds and hearts about the person and the power of Jesus. But they did not understand what it was they were supposed to get because their heart was hardened. And so Mark's comment suggests that had their hearts been confirmed and validated as to who Jesus was, their reaction to the storm and Jesus walking on the water should have been and might have been entirely different than it was. And so this morning we're going to look at what all four Gospels tell us about what happened from the feeding of the 5,000 to the miracle of Jesus walking on the water and what happens in between. And I'm suggesting that Jesus is setting them up for a miracle that will remove their hardness in their heart. So let's examine what took place at the feeding of the 5,000. This is how Matthew records the event of the 5,000 at the feeding. He says, When it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And according to Mark's account, Jesus then took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven, blessed the food and broke the loaves And he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. There's a somewhat significant difference in the tenses used here. Mark uses the aorist tense, which is just a tense of completed action, when he says that Jesus took the loaves, and he looked up to heaven, and he blessed the food, and he broke the bread. Those are all aorist tenses, just describing what Jesus did as completed action. But then Jesus did something that wasn't finished for a long time. It went on and on, which is expressed in an imperfect tense, continuous action in the past. And that is that he gave the disciples bread. So gave is in the imperfect tense, unlike the others in the aorist tense, continuous action in the past. He kept giving the loaves to the disciples to set before the people. The disciples came to Jesus repeatedly for more food, and they handed it out to the people, and everybody ate, and they were satiated. 
And there it is. That's what they missed, a creation miracle. Instead of recognizing the miracle for what it was, the heart of the disciples was hardening with indifference towards the miracle. And just as Jesus kept doling out the bread and the fish over and over again to the disciples, Mark says that the heart of the disciples was being hardened over and over again. Hardened there is a perfect participle, continuous action with enduring results. It continued to remain hard during the feeding and until Jesus comes to them walking on the water. That in entire time their heart is hardened until they see Jesus at the boat. I think it's strange that the crowd following Jesus seemed to be more in tune with what had happened at the feeding of the 5,000 than the disciples were. And so to me, the purpose of the miracle of walking on the water is to set before the disciples the reality of their insensibility toward the miracle of the feeding. And this is why Mark places the comment about the hardening of their hearts in the text of the miracle of Jesus walking on the water instead of at the feeding of the 5,000. And this should have been the disciples' response. Wow! (laughs) He just keeps breaking the seven loaves of bread and dividing the fish over and over again. He's actually creating more bread and fish to feed the 5,000. That's something only God can do. That should have been the response or something like that. But instead, their heart had become dull and indifferent to the miracle of the feeding. And this is simply more evidence about what I stated a couple of weeks ago when I was talking to you about miracles. Miracles can't compel belief in the divinity of Jesus. Miracles were clearly insufficient in themselves to convert the skeptic or the cynic or the committed hardened unbeliever, I said, to acknowledge who Jesus was. And I think it's odd because if the disciples were just mere novices about divine things, if they hadn't taken Miracles 101 in high school and they were simply religious spectators like so many of the people that were following Jesus around in the crowds, their response response wouldn't surprise us at all. But all 12 of those guys had master's degrees from the School of Divine Intervention. Their laundry list of witnessing healings and incredible teaching for two years is pretty staggering when you read through the Gospels. This miracle stuff just wasn't news to them. So the comment about their hardness of heart is a strangely irregular response this far into their relationship with Jesus. And it must have been very troubling to Jesus. I mean, think about it. These are the guys who are going to eventually spend the rest of their lives at the cost of their lives spreading the news of Jesus' spiritual kingdom throughout the whole known world. And they were indifferent to what he was doing. 
They were indifferent to his power and to his divinity. It just didn't matter to them. So what they should have tuned into is that the sovereign Lord of the universe had been in action and they weren't even aware of it. And I'm suggesting that Jesus recognizes that they really didn't get it yet and sets them up for the miracle that's going to change their hardened heart into worshipful hearts later on that evening. So there's the problem we're contending with. How is the miracle of walking on the water going to remedy this hardened heart problem that Mark says the disciples were suffering from? So let's take a moment to consider how all four of the Gospels sort of fill in the gaps for us in this time between the two miracles. And I'm suggesting to you that Jesus is planning a divine intervention just for the disciples. Matthew records that immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. So that's the word compel. Jesus compelled them to get into the boat. He forced them to get into the boat. Of course, not physically forcing them, but it's a strong word. It's making someone do something that they really don't want to do. And there isn't any explanation in Matthew as to why Jesus needed to do that or how Jesus did that. But they must have been moderately unwilling to leave him for Jesus to compel them to get into the boat. But John tells us in his gospel why he might have compelled them to get into the boat, which is why it's important to look at all four of the gospel accounts in understanding what happened here. John 6.14 says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, in other words, when the crowd realized that the feeding was a clear, outward, visible sign, a miracle indicating Jesus' secret power, they said, This is indeed the prophet who's come into the world. And perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So there clearly was an urgency on Jesus' part to separate the disciples from the crowd. The crowd was planning to seize Jesus by force and make him king that very night. And we know that the disciples were tempted to think in those terms as well to make him king. In fact, even after his resurrection and before his ascension, immediately prior to it in Acts 1.6, we still find his disciples saying to him these words, Lord, is it now that you're going to set up your kingdom? So they had the same thinking in their minds. The disciples were apparently waiting for some sort of earthly manifestation of his kingdom to be established here on earth as well. And so he sends his disciples away, lest they perhaps gather impetus from the crowd and the multitudes and join in with their plans to try and establish him as some kind of earthly king that night. And that couldn't happen because Jesus was setting up a different kind of kingdom. 
And I'm suggesting that Jesus prays about how to intervene most effectively when he sees the troubling response of the crowd, so that's why he goes up on the mountain to pray by himself. And Matthew writes, And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. We don't know what he prayed that particular night, but we can make some good guesses. He was on the mountain for most of the night. In fact, it suggests that he walks on the water at the fourth watch right before the early dawn. And the response of the crowd must have been troubling to him. It might have called for a night of prayer to seek wisdom from his father, perhaps to bring him the needful patience to deal with the hardened hearts of his disciples. And what better thing to pray for than God's will for the lives of his disciples, seeing as how important their lives were to his ministry? Maybe he was praying that the storm that he knew they were going to run into later that night might finally be the experience that softened their calloused hearts. Maybe he prayed that they might be courageous in the midst of a terrifying storm and recognize that he alone has the power to silence the raging sea and that in his presence there's no need to be fearful, which they didn't understand yet. And the text goes on and says, When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. The text says the boat was many furlongs away from the shore. A furlong is an eighth of a mile. And Mark says in 647, Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. So they're perhaps a couple of miles out in the sea. It's in the dark. And he sees them straining at rowing. Mark tells us expressly that Jesus is aware that the disciples are struggling against a headwind, maybe throughout the whole night. And yet he doesn't do anything until the fourth watch, which is the hours just before dawn. He doesn't do anything. This implies Jesus is intentionally leaving his disciples to struggle for quite a while. And we realize that some miracles have to wait until just the right moment. And what a great setup it was for a hardened heart miracle. What a great opportunity for another miracle of divine intervention that would really do a number on the hearts of the disciples. And so after rowing for a number of hours, they had hardly rowed for more than a few miles. And they were fishermen. By the way, the kinds of storms that came up on the Sea of Galilee were really unpleasant. It was a really bad place to be stuck in the middle of the night. These storms were described as raging turbulent, and violent downpours. So Mark says Jesus allows the disciples to be tortured 
by the storm in Mark 6.47. The English standard, Standard Version says, they were making headway painfully. The New King James translates the phrase, they were straining at rowing. The Greek word for straining is tortured or tormented. This trying to keep up against the storm was tormenting them. Matthew implies that the boat was struggling as it was being tossed by the waves many furlongs from the shore. Mark sees the disciples as the ones who are struggling. So the disciples were clearly harassed and stressed as they were struggling against the headwind. The wind was set against them as if it were an adversary and hostile toward what they were doing. And clearly Jesus saw some value in allowing them to struggle for so long. Let's take a few minutes to, to think about something with miracles with me here. You think that there's some miracles that are more difficult for Jesus than other miracles? Was it more difficult to walk on water than to heal a blind man? I suppose you aren't thinking of it quite that way. I'm hoping you aren't. One more miracle being a little bit more difficult than another miracle. One miracle a bit more trying for him to accomplish than another miracle. In terms of walking on the water, we can't really say it's any more difficult to overcome the natural molecular attractions of water molecules to suddenly maximize their molecular attractions so that now they suddenly become hard enough to support Jesus' body weight, which I imagine he'd have to do on all the water that he's walking on so that he doesn't fall into the lake, though I don't actually know how he did walk on the water. And of course, it probably doesn't matter that he's not maximizing the molecular attractions of calm, placid water molecules. No, he's strengthening the molecules of the water that he's walking over in the midst of a raging thunderstorm that is terrorizing 12 fishermen stuck in a dinghy in the middle of the lake, in the middle of the night, because their hearts are hardened. If you're tracking with me here, the idea of Jesus struggling with things should be getting more and more remote in your thinking. Because I imagine it's not a whole lot more difficult or impossible to walk on water than it is to start separating, dividing, and multiplying those fish and bread molecules to reproduce food. And it's not just reproducing food either, but reproducing just enough food so that 5,000 men and their wives and children are also fed. You have to think of everything when you're thinking about preaching. 
right? Without overdoing the dividing of the molecules and accidentally and unintentionally having mountains of dead fish and bread left over. I mean, it's not as if he was able to create the molecular division of the bread and fish, but couldn't turn off the tap in time. No, Jesus was a master of divine intervention. Because in every way, he was perfect. And we learn in this passage this morning that no situation is beyond Jesus' divine ability to intervene and fix it perfectly. Even when the situation is as complex as turning the indifferent, hardened hearts of the disciples into hearts of worship. But since he's the creator and sustainer of the universe, and he's its sovereign king, I'm feeling pretty confident that even changing the hardened hearts to hearts of worship isn't any more difficult to do than any other miracle. Well, let's think about how Jesus turns their hardened heart into hearts of worship. The text says, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Mark says, when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a phantasma, that's the Greek word, and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. And I think they're troubled because they must have been thinking, well, that couldn't possibly be Jesus coming to our rescue, walking on the water in the midst of a storm like this and not being violently tossed around like our little dinghy here. That that can't happen. Not believing that it could possibly be Jesus walking on the water, they assumed that it must have been some immaterial, supernatural being that had become visible. That's what the Greek word phantasma means. We know that they were really shaken up. Because now it's to the point of imagining that there was some messenger of death there to remind them that they were only moments away from their end. One commentator put it like this. They as yet, not free from the popular superstitions of their countrymen, thought that it was a spirit, or better, a phantom or apparition, taking the familiar form, perhaps to lure them to their destruction, or as a sign that some sudden setback had deprived them of that loved presence, And therefore, in their vague terror, they were troubled and cried out for fear. But here's what's interesting. Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it's I. Don't be afraid. He actually commands them, be courageous. Be assured, be confident. It's me. I'm the person. I'm here. I'm walking on the water. Don't be afraid. 
They're as troubled by the sight of what they think is an apparition as they are by the raging storm that they've been caught up in. But as they hear his voice, and they're sort of brought face to face with the reality of his majesty and miraculous ability to show up in the middle of the lake, he graciously assures them there's no need to be afraid. You know, if only we could live in that kind of trusting relationship with Jesus, our Savior, in the midst of our raging storms. Don't be afraid. And in a moment, it seems they were suddenly confronted with their failure to see who Jesus is that they missed at the feeding of the 5,000. They just needed another incomprehensible glimpse of his divine power and authority to begin cracking those hardened hearts. And the truth of who Jesus was was instantly revealed to them. And we see as well how the impact of seeing Jesus coming to them in the storm, in the midst of this raging storm. And Mark writes, Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. For they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. But now they did. Now they get it. They were left with no choice now. To be greatly amazed is literally to put someone beside themselves. In the sense of being deranged or even out of one's mind. You can look up in Thayer's lexicon about that. And that's the proper response, though, to a genuine divine miracle. It should shake up your world. It should put you so far out of your senses so that you're left with nothing other than an immediate need to begin worshiping. That's what should happen when you see a divine intervention. Which is exactly what happens. And Jesus brings them through their hardened unbelief. And Matthew says, Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God of God. Well, you know, Jesus has amazing expectations for our faithfulness. How easily indifference had set up in the corrupted faith of the disciples towards Jesus. You know, it makes me want to pray for myself and to pray for all of you. Father, always be removing the blindness from our eyes that keep us from boldly and confidently trusting in Jesus. You know what the lesson is for us here? God wants us to be bold and confident in our faith, courageous in the midst of our struggles and trials, confident in Jesus' divine love and care for us. And when we aren't confident in our faith, expect God to find a way to strengthen that weak faith, just like he did for the disciples. 
And when we live in that boldness as to who Jesus is, we should expect to see great things from God. And because we can expect to see great things from God, we should attempt great things for God. That's what Jesus said in John 14. Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And so we understand that to mean Jesus going to the Father is what brings us the indwelling of the Spirit to do the kinds of works in and through us that Jesus does. But you know, that's not quite the end of the miracle yet, is it? Peter answered him and said, Lord, since it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. We can't miss this part. Talk about expectations for faithfulness. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. And he said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Wow, what, what great faith for Peter to get out of the boat and walk on the water to Jesus. That's a miracle of faith and trust in Jesus, even if it's only for a couple of moments. This is remarkably characteristic of Peter, though, as we learn, get to know and learn about him. He's eager, but he's not really reliable. He's daring, but he's still unsure and afraid. He's wanting to be extraordinarily faithful, but he's not steadfast. Note Jesus doesn't say, well, Peter, well, it's okay. It is pretty windy out here. He gives him a new name. He says, oh, oligopistos, little faith. He says to Peter, oh, little faith, why did you doubt? What would it be like for us to live day by day in the amazing expectations Jesus has for our faithfulness? It wasn't the window, was it? It was his lack of faith that made him start to sink. As if we should think, if his faith hadn't been so weak, he would have stood easily against the, wood, the wind and, and would have just stood there with Jesus. And notice that Jesus doesn't even command the raging storm to stop. The text says, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. You know, as if it was instantly having grown tired of its raging violence and it had already accomplished everything that Jesus wanted it to accomplish, so there was no reason to rage anymore. And did his disciples begin to see what their hardened hearts had gotten them? 
Do you see what happens when our hearts become indifferent to Jesus? It had reduced them to sheer unbelief in the power and supremacy and sovereignty and the wonder of the Lord Jesus. Just calloused with indifference. Had they understood all the divine creative energy which the miracle of the loaves involved nothing afterwards, not even the walking on the waves or the quieting of the storm would have seemed startling to them. So I would suggest that the level of our fear is going to be greatly reduced the more we actually live in the truth and in the reality that God is sovereign and all-powerful in this world. He is in control of everything. And we're going to see in the next two sermons in Psalms even more evidence of that. This miracle teaches us this morning to live in the truth that all things are subservient to the controlling will and purposes of the Most High God. Aren't the Lord's ways with us so endlessly interesting? You know, because he could have simply calmed the seas for his disciples while he stood on the mountain far away watching them straining. But he wanted them to see him delivering them. He wanted to strengthen their faith in him. He wanted them to know that in trusting him, they were trusting in no one less than the living God. The maker of heaven and earth. Folks, to live by faith in Jesus Christ is an exciting and wonderful thing. And so be prepared for him to fill your life with what reveals and tests and strengthens our faith. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for the words this morning of your apostles. What powerful words and what a great reminder to us as well, Father, that uh, it's so easy for us to be fearful, to us to, for us to be indifferent, for us to uh, ignore who you are, and think that we can somehow control things on our own. Father, help us to encourage each other to be people who live by faith and long to see your power in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.